Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 1st, 2020. This is episode 2723 of the Survival Podcast. <clears throat> and uh, I decided it was time to do kind of a back-to-basics permaculture episode. I haven't really done that in a long time. We've talked about permaculture We've gone into individual tactics and techniques at times. I always allude to it, but we haven't done kind of like, well, I don't even know what permaculture is. Why does this matter to my life, and what is the basics of it, and what is it all about? The truth is I should do a whole series of these kind of back-to-basics on permaculture, and I probably will. Today we're going to start out, and we're going to do two things with it. I'm going to talk about zone-based design. And zone-based design is actually really easy to understand, so it's going to be the shorter part of the episode. And then I'm going to go through 12 principles of permaculture, and these 12 principles of permaculture are permaculture principles from David Holgram. Now, David Holgram was the co-founder of permaculture along with Bill Mullis, and he's the lesser known of the duo. And I believe that the two of them should get equal credit for permaculture as a thing, as a concept. I do, I do believe that Mollison did a lot more to turn it into a word that people knew. I believe that without Mollison, it would have been a great idea that was a book that languished in the back of a library and nobody would have ever seen. David kind of disappeared after the, the release of permaculture as a concept into society for about 20 years. He just didn't hear anything from the guy, and he finally came out with a book, and it was a fantastic book. It was a fantastic book. So I'm, I'm trying to give equal credit, but I'm also trying to credit each of these founders properly. Bill went to work on the ground doing PDCs and seminars and speaking and did that for about 20 years and then David finally showed up with his own book. And in this book, he had 12 principles of permaculture. And these principles are often taught as the 12 permaculture principles. That is really misleading. These are 12 great permaculture principles by one of the movement's founders. That's what I'm going to be covering today, and we'll get to all of that in just a bit, and I'll even tell you why it's a survival topic. We'll talk a little bit about the Prime Directive and the ethics. <clears throat> we'll talk a little bit about why it is a design-based science, not a um, kind of a hippie thing, hippy-dippy movement or something like that, if you ever thought. And we'll talk about how it's a lot bigger than just growing your own food. Before we dig into that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is the Free State Project. Yep, the Free State Project. And the Free State Project started out as a simple idea. What if you could move a large number of liberty-minded individuals to a single place and then drag that place kicking and screaming, if need be, against its will into the world of liberty and freedom? They chose New Hampshire for that. And their current uh, real big push is to just get you to visit. New Hampshire is kind of a magical place. I almost moved to New Hampshire when I first got out of the Army. Uh, some other things happened and drew me down to Texas, but I can tell you that if you visit New Hampshire, you just might fall in love with it. You'll find people up there that care about the same things that you do. I've been a supporter of the Free State Project almost since the beginning of the Survival Podcast, since about 2009. Uh, that tells you something when I support an organization as strongly as I have and for that long, that maybe it's something worth checking out. 
Check them out today at fsp.org forward slash visit NH. fsp.org forward slash visit NH. Or you can just go to fsp.org and you'll be able to find everything you want to about them from there. Next up today, I want to remind you guys about knifekits.com. Knifekits is a very long-term sponsor of the show. They've been supporting us since 2010. Um, that's, that's 10 years in the world of podcasting, and they're just a great company. Making knives is a skill set that, that really pays dividends beyond just being able to make knives. It can lead to a fascinating hobby, maybe just the creation of some family heirlooms, or even a side hustle or full-time business. Learn more at knifekits.com. And remember, they also do a discount for members of the MSB. So... Let's dig into today's topic on the Survival Podcast. And, and, and again, we're talking about permaculture. And this is kind of a back-to-basics permaculture episode for those of you who've been through permaculture instructionals with me before and, and permaculture overviews with me before or that are familiar with permaculture. If you're not familiar with permaculture, this will be a good episode for you because we're going to start from the standpoint of explaining what it is, why it matters, how it applies to your life. And we'll even talk a little bit today about why it is a survival topic, or in my world, a modern survival topic. I, uh, I came up with the term modern survivalism back in 2008 to differentiate what we do here at the Survival Podcast from the conventional mindset of, of survivalism and preparedness of being uh, very primitive or being uh, 100% kind of doomsday bunker orientated. How to take your life and make it resilient and non-brittle and not give up the things that the modern world has to offer. Permaculture... When I found it, which was about the same time that I started this show back in 2008, and when I first found permaculture, I kind of looked at it the way a lot of people do. I looked at it as being uh, a way to grow food, and I looked at it as you planted trees and bushes and vines instead of planting you know, vegetables. That was That's what I saw it as, and I think a lot of people do see it that way. As I dug into it and learned more about it and met my, uh, my longtime mentor now, Jeff Lawton, um, I discovered that permaculture was not really about growing food. It was just one thing that permaculture enables you to do. And I realized the reason that was so front and center is because it was something people could see and understand. And because fundamentally, it's about providing everything that humans need to live wonderful lives. That's what, that's what permaculture really is all about. How do I provide everything that a human needs in a way that is good for the earth and good for people at the same time? And how do I do that in the most – sustainable is not even the right word. Sustainable means like kind of barely getting by. Permaculture, we want a world of abundance to where even though we're taking enough for ourselves and to supply our systems and have a yield that may not just be food, it may be profit, it may be a yield that we use for building materials, a yield that we use for medicines, even though we're taking something from the system – the system is so resilient that it actually becomes more productive over time. Instead of just keeping it at par, we're actually trying to be regenerative in what we do with permaculture. And that's why permaculture and regenerative agriculture seem to be so interlaced because they are, they're basically the same thing, except regenerative agriculture is focusing on agriculture only. And I don't even really consider regenerative agriculture to be regenerative agriculture. I use the term. And I promote the term because it's one that people understand. I really see it as regenerative horticulture, which is the, the culture of plants in a way that, that is regenerative. And I don't even see regenerative agriculture as just regenerative horticulture. It's really 
And you would just never use this phrase. It would be the most terrible marketing phrase you could come up with. Regenerative, regenerative horticulture and animal husbandry. That's really, and that is what permaculture can be from a food production, food, fibers, medicine, etc. production methodology. But what I think really drives home the point as to why permaculture is a topic that every prepper, every modern survivalist, everybody that's concerned about the environment, everybody's concerned about the environment as an environmentalist, and everybody's concerned about the environment is how the hell are we going to deal with all the crazy crap that's going on in the world? Should be should be interested in is because of something co-founder David Holgram said about permaculture, and, and I just thought this was the best quote of the day to lead off with today, and it really drives home again why it matters to us as people, as beings, as humans on on planet Earth. So he said, "I thought if something was a good idea, we should be able to apply it to ourselves as guinea pigs and do something with it, rather than just tell other people what they should do." And again, that's from David Holgram. And this is what I loved about permaculture from the beginning. My show has been built now for over 12 years on a belief that every day that you tune into it, whether it's the audio podcast, or, and I'm putting this one out on video today as well, or a video, or anything that I do, that I do branded under Jack Spirico and the Survival Podcast, should give you not just entertainment and education value, but you should walk away every day and say, "There's here's some things I can do in my life. Now, maybe you wouldn't do them all, but there should always be something that you can do. And that something that you can do should then result in something in your life or in the life of your family and those around you being better than it would be had you not known how to do it. That unless we're actually able to do things, you know, go home and call your senators does not fix the problems that are, there are in the world. Uh, lecturing you on Austrian economics does not fix the problems that there are in the world. And, and it's not even that those things maybe don't have a place. But if you want to worry about a solution, then we should be able to take the concepts and we should be able to go out and do something and then there should be a result. And somebody who's not sold on the idea should be able to come into your life and look at you and what you've done and say, you know what, there's something good here. There's something about this that I want for myself, or it doesn't really have any inherent value. And when it comes to being able to produce food and things like that, there's not a person that's come and visit us who when we've walked through our gardens and we've walked through our aquaculture systems and our aquaponic systems, and we've walked through how we run our life or we've cooked food for them or they just see the entire way that the whole property supports our lifestyle, that they don't leave here wishing there was some piece of it that they could incorporate into their lives. People that came here for no reason other than to visit us because they were family, they leave asking questions. How can we do this? They don't want to do everything because they know there's no way I can go home and just do what this guy's done on his property over seven years. right? And they might have a smaller property or a different one. But they're like, I have this little space. And, we'll get it. and see, that shows you that what you do have value, has value. When people wish to do what you've done, not because of some philosophy or ideology, but because of the concrete things that they can touch, look, see, smell, taste, and say, if I had this, my life would be a little better. Then you're in the right frame. You're doing things the right way. You're doing things that matter, and you're doing things that most importantly can be replicated. 
that other people can do so that you actually have a movement that actually spreads, not with people tweeting about it or yelling about it or chanting about it or printing it on a piece of paper. It, it, it spreads in a way with actual action that actually creates things that are productive and useful, and therefore it's beyond sustainable. It truly does become regenerative, and the problems that we have in the world are such that we need regeneration. And even if you just want to be on your own, so to say, you want to be able to, to stand through some of the hard times that I believe are coming, then your property needs to be regenerative. If you only want to focus on food production, it's a good place to start. It's where most people do. And if you do that, you understand real quick, this is a big part of modern survivalism. Because... You know, I am a huge supporter of the Second Amendment, and, and, and hell, the hell with the Second Amendment. The, the Second Amendment simply protects the right that I believe that we inherently have to defend ourselves and our property. I, I think that our right to do that, Second Amendment or not, exists. The Second Amendment is just one way that we keep the state out of our business, to a, a degree anyway, when it comes to that right of self-protection. But let me be honest. I've been shot at once in my life. Once. I didn't like it. Didn't care for it. I've had to feed myself every day from the time I was old enough to actually feed myself instead of being fed by my parents. And I will have to feed myself and see to my needs to eat and see to the needs of my family to eat and see to the needs of my fellow man to eat until the day they lay me to rest, until my dash is expired. That's about as modern survival as it gets, because sometimes people ask me. So I wanted to start out today with the prime directive and three ethics, and the short version thereof. When Bill Mollison and David Holgram got together, put this, this concept down into something that was concrete and could be taught and spread and built upon, they knew it had to have a foundation that was beyond a mechanical foundation, beyond a foundation like you get when you study history in a book. There had to be something that was beyond beyond our concept of history. We break history into eras and cycles and things like that. That had to be timeless. And the place that Bill knew to look for what was timeless was in indigenous cultures. So he looked at an indigenous cultures and he, he, he looked for the principles that they lived by that were as universal as possible. Because you could come up with a hundred thousand different things that different indigenous cultures said that they lived by. But could you distill them down into the most basic components where no matter what you came up with, if it was common, it was covered. If it was common to all the indigenous cultures, it was covered in this simplicity. And he started out with the prime directive. Those that know Star Trek will know their prime directive. It's a little bit different. The prime directive of permaculture is the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. And that's not some big, giant, global version of our children. It's your children, your community, your backyard. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility first for yourself. In an airplane, they teach you to put your mask on before you help the kid put the mask on. So you don't pass out, the kid doesn't know how to put the mask on. If you are not caring for yourself, then you are inherently a burden on others. You see how that works? So first we stand up and we take care of ourselves and our backyard and our own needs, and we make sure that we can care for ourselves. And being future thinking, 
we understand that that next generation one day will care for us. So we must care for them, and we must make sure their future is worth living. That's the prime directive. That's simple. That's about as modern survivalism as it gets. Since I coined the phrase, I get to tell you what it means. <laughs> anyway, uh, then there are three ethics. And they are care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus. There's a lot of ways to state the third one. I like that short version because it's it's easy. And any, any other version of it you come up with, I can cover under return of surplus. So this is really simple. We don't harm the earth. If you're doing something and it's hurting the earth, it's not permaculture, and it's not sustainable. We have one big giant ball we all live on, and we can only damage it so much before it will not support us anymore. Just like you wouldn't spill poison or set fire to your own home unless you were mentally deranged, you shouldn't do that to any part of the planet. This is a basic, common principle from indigenous cultures. We do not hurt Mother Earth because it sustains us. We do not hurt our fellow man. One reason is because karma is real and karma is a bitch. But if we take care of others, then what we put out will come back to us. Karma is a bitch or karma is kind, depending on what we do. But we, you know, we have a real taste for war in our world today because we have other people fight our wars in other places. Indigenous cultures knew when they went to war that the person they loved would die, or maybe they would die. And war was inherently limited, and it was not sustainable. That's just one way to look at care of others, care of people. But if, the basic concept is if you're hurting people, it's not permaculture. And then the last one, return of surplus. This is turned into because people wanted to turn permaculture into a social justice movement, which it isn't, and it never has been. And it wasn't founded as that. It was founded in the 1970s, for God's sakes. Um, if you want something to be regenerative, you can't only take from it. So whether we're taking it for ourselves or taking it and somehow philanthropically giving it to somebody else, we're still extracting from a system beyond its capability to sustain itself. And that is strip mining. And if you strip mine, you ain't doing permaculture. What we need to do is when we create a surplus in a system, we need to look at that surplus and say, what is the highest use of this surplus? Maybe it's to feed ourselves. Maybe it's to store food so that we can eat in the winter when we can't grow more. Maybe it's to feed it to our animals. Maybe it's to return fertility to the earth. Maybe it is for it to go somewhere else and create a monetary yield so we can stay where we are. But none of those things can be beyond the capacity of the land or whatever system we're working on, because it doesn't have to be horticulture. It doesn't have to be animal husbandry. Any system that we have that we're designing as a permaculture system, it will produce an excess to what we need. And then we must find the highest use, and we return it to the first two ethics. It should be returned to caring for the earth and caring for people, but that should start with the zones around us that we control, not a thousand miles away somewhere else. Because if you're moving stuff a thousand miles, whether it's economic or material or whatever, you're not taking care of the place it comes from. That's the basic concept, as simple as I can make it. Permaculture is a design science. And it's really important to understand that as well as we go through this today. It is not something that you look at as a philosophy, right? It's just a, an idea. 
there's there's a material science, there is a known science to the design behind it. If we do this, then that. And if we're going to design a system, we should look at what we really want. I want a garden. No, you don't want a garden. What do you actually, when you say you want a garden, what are you saying? You want beauty. You want maybe food. Maybe you want to attract pollinating insects. Maybe you just don't like a big pile of mud and you want something else. You see what I'm saying? You need to then examine what it is you actually are trying to accomplish. It's the, the old saying is you don't want a drill bit, you want a hole. Well, what kind of hole and what kind of material and how big and for what purpose? Now we're thinking at a systems level instead of a technique or tactic level. When we think at the systems level, then we, we then choose the appropriate tactics and techniques to get the end goal. That's a design science. And that's why it gets really clear if we start out with that mindset, the ethics, the directive, and the design science component, and we look at zones, and then it all opens up. So when we look at permaculture zones, we're talking about the place we live. It could be something else, but today we're going we're gonna, to, from this point on, I'm going to do this for food production, and I'm going to do this for a homestead. But you can apply this to a business. You can apply this to designing at the level of a city, or even a country, or even a continent, and in any way. But I'm going to do it as a homestead for food production because that's how most of you will initially use it. And as I started out with today, how you use it and that, that you use it is important. Okay. So a zone zero for me, I'm sitting in it. Zone zero is everything under roof that's not an outbuilding. Every where I live, where my dogs live. We've designed the way we live in our home to interconnect with what's outside of it. It's not like we live here and then that's out there and they're two different places. We're just thinking in a, an expanding zone. So I am everywhere in my home, most of it anyway, every day. So how our home is set up with even its pantry is designed around the fact that food comes into the house. But it's designed for us, for, for me, my wife, my grandkids, and our dogs. And that's zone zero. Zone one is when I walk outside of my house. That first foot of property is my zone one. It's the closest to me. If I'm on a piece of my property every day, it's probably managed as zone one. This is where my intensive gardens, my herb gardens, um, my animal systems are access to my animal systems where they sleep at night are. So people usually draw these as like circles that are like concentric and do like that. That's illustrative. It, it's not realistic. I've never seen a single property ever designed that way ever in my life. So I have a duck house that's about 150 feet right behind me from my, my house. That area over there would not be a zone one unless those animals were there. But since they're there and I have to walk out there every day and I have to walk back every day, Instead of being a circle like this, my zone one has a long, skinny peninsula that goes out there and comes back past my pool. That's a part of my zone one. And my other piece of my zone one goes out this way on the other side of the property out to my aviary and my greenhouse. So my zone one is like a big bat wing, like a, like a crippled bat, like this, you know? And that's because I'm there every day. So the systems that need to be maintained on a daily basis are there. And as you go out from there... You go to a zone two. That's going to be more of your your lower maintenance orchards. 
but they're finely mulched and taken care of, and they need to be paid attention to. A zone three, you're going to move out to more of your main crops, the, the crops that you kind of plant and then you harvest. Like that would be your grains, your corn, etc. maybe some of your grazing systems. Zone four is where you move into full farm forestry. It's rough mulch. It's probably not irrigated or it's mildly irrigated. And then zone five is the wilderness. And you just take that concept and you fold it into all of your design thinking. And if you're sitting here going, but Jack, I live on a 60 by 150 lot in suburbia. Okay? You probably have a zone one, zero, one, and two. You can have some little tribute zone five. Because zone five is where we just leave it alone. We don't do anything. We kind of hunt and gather there, but we go into the forest to learn from nature. It is it is our hunter-gatherer homage to earth. So maybe you could have in a suburban lot a little spot that you let go all weedy and stuff like that and let butterflies come in or whatever. But really, you probably have two zones. It's fine. Maybe you have three. It all depends. But you're going to think about this. If you have rabbit hutches then you still have this path that you walk down to get to those rabbit hutches because you have to take care of them every day. They're a living, breathing creature that lives in a hutch, and therefore they must be fed and watered and looked after and managed on a daily basis. It's not right to put them out there and not do that because if you don't do that, then that animal's stuck. It can't go anywhere. It can't see to its own needs. You have to take care of it. So anything like that. So if I have that, it might make a lot of sense. One design I might do is put some gardens along the path. So now my zone one is long and skinny. And as I go out to those gardens, there's a weed here and a weed there and a weed here and a weed there. And I take it with me and I drop that off with my rabbits and let them eat it. Maybe I have a compost pit back there. Maybe a worm bin or something. So I take you know, all of my scraps with me and whatever can go to the rabbits goes to the rabbits. In my case, it goes to the ducks and the chickens. Same principle. That's one way to think about this. So just think in zones. And that's as, as simple as I want to be, or as, as complex as I want to be with it today. But I, I do want to just pause for a second, even though I said I'm going to do all homesteading and food production for all. I just want you to think a little bit beyond horticulture, agriculture, whatever you want to call it, with this zone thinking. If you're smart and you have a manufacturing business, you run your manufacturing business this way. Where your inventory is, your shipping, your receiving, there's zones, right? There's zones out there. And we also can get, we're not going to do it today, but we can get into sectors as well with permaculture. We'll talk about the next episode we do on permaculture. We'll talk about sectors. But there's a zone for everything. And it's based on activity and movement of systems, movement of material or movement of information through the system. All I'm suggesting is when you design your property, you first figure out what you want it to do for you. What are you really trying to get out of it? Then you figure out the elements that give you what you want and the techniques to put those elements in. So an element would be a garden. A technique in a garden would be a hygge culture where we bury wood or a raised bed or a wicking bed or an aquaponics garden or an herb spiral or just a standard in-ground garden or a straw bale garden. Or an in the ground, like see, those are all, those are all techniques, techniques and tactics for the establishment of an element. So first we figure out what we want, then we figure out well what, where do we want it in the system? How do we manage it? And then what tactic and technique do we use to get that thing to give us what we want 
based on our resources and what we have available to ourselves and what we really want. Everything can be designed that way, and everything should be designed that way. Why would you have any major component of your life and not design it when you could? It's like going out with a ship into the ocean, and you say, where are you going? You're leaving California. I'm going to Tokyo. I hope you charted a course, because you could get to Tokyo, but you probably won't. And the first step in charting the course is knowing the destination. So when we do this with permaculture, we want to know what do we want to accomplish Why do we want to accomplish it? What is available to us? What are those tactics and techniques? And then how does that fall into a zone-based design system? That moves on. Let's move on to 12 Principles of Permaculture by David Holgram. And when I, when I look at these, I always try to rephrase them in a way that makes them maybe a little bit more approachable to more people. So let's start out with his first principle, observe and interact. The way I phrase that for people that I think makes it more approachable is be a part of things. But observation and interaction would be something like, again, with gardening. So I plant zucchinis. And in Texas, we have a lot of vine borers. It's a terrible pest. They come in and kill my zucchinis. I've also planted another plant. It's called a zucchini, but it's really not a zucchini, called Trumbushino squash. They can be used like a zucchini when young or allowed to age. It's more like a butternut with a really long neck. And I've observed that even though the vine borers attack the trombuccino, it can produce and the other standard zucchini that were so easy to grow when I lived in Pennsylvania cannot. Or not at a level that makes it worth the space they take and the effort it takes to get a couple squash. Like get a bunch of big trombuccino squashes. So I've observed and I've interacted And it's by being a part of things, I've made a decision that I'm just not going to grow these other plants anymore. I'm going to grow this plant that works better. Because I've accepted a given amount of feedback from my environment. Or I'll notice something like, when my blackberries flower, I tend to never get another frost. Now, how do I know that? I know that because I've kept journals on my property by being a part of the natural systems here. I don't tell, I don't go out and go, okay, blackberries, it is April 1. You must flower now. Because the blackberry's like, I don't give a shit. I don't care. The, the blackberry is a natural plant, and it has an innate intelligence. And it knows, it, it's, it's very livelihood, its ability to procreate is wrapped up around the ability to produce this berry with these seeds in it that, like, say, birds will eat and crap out somewhere else and make more blackberries. And it must produce those berries if it is to propagate beyond what it can do with cloning itself in a clump expansion, right? So it has to have an innate intelligence that says, now is the time to flower. Because if it flowers and then a frost comes in and knocks the flowers off, no berries that year. So the blackberry has figured this out. So when I'm sitting and I'm going, is it time to put my tomatoes in my garden yet? And my peppers in my garden yet? Because if I put them in there and it frosts, they die. I just look at the blackberries. And by being a part of my own ecosystem here, the blackberries say, dude, it's time. So I might wait a day or two after those flowers show up, if they seem a bit early to me, but they've never lied to me yet. That's observation and interaction and the acceptance of feedback. Next. Catch and store energy. Catch and store energy. Another way to look at this from a prepper standpoint is 
Be an ant, not a grasshopper. I've been teaching that since almost day one. My grandfather used to sit and tell me the story of the ant and the grasshopper on his knee when I was a little kid. And for those that don't know, the, the, the Cliff Notes version of the ants and the grasshopper is the grasshopper fiddle-farted around in the field all day. And when the weather was beautiful, he ate his grass, and he really didn't give a care about anything in the world. The ant worked his ass off, you know, cl collecting and storing food and taking it down in his little ant hole with his family of ants. The grasshopper mocked the ant for working so hard and never enjoying himself. And then it got very cold one day. The snow fell. The ants went down their hole and they lived through their winter on their storage. And the grasshopper died. It's not the new story where the grasshopper goes to the ants and learns his lesson and they feed him. If, you, if a grasshopper goes to the ant hill, they'll chop him up and eat him and take him inside. The grasshopper died because he didn't catch and store energy. And our systems need to be designed to catch and store energy. No one can escape entropy. All systems degrade in energy over time. We can only keep something. There's no perpetual, endless, infinite energy. Even the sun has entropy and eventually one day will die. But we should take the energy stores that we have and do our best with making the best use of them to the highest use to the ends of care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus. But we need to catch and store energy. What that means is endless and boundless. And that's why I love these principles of Holdren, because they're easy to understand. And if you have just these 12, even though some other great principles, you have everything you need to be a good designer. Maybe not the best designer you could ever be, but a good one. So catch and store energy. Here's an example. It rains here occasionally. A lot of times it doesn't. Look, that might rain today. It's about time. It's, we, we went through our drought of summer that we always have. So there's a time of the year where it rains abundantly, and there's a time of year where it doesn't rain very well at all. I have these two great big poly tanks, and I have these uh, things called gutters, like you probably do on your house, and they go into the poly tanks. And when it rains abundantly, the rain comes off the roof just like it does at your house, but mine goes into these two big poly tanks that sit up on some cinder blocks. And then just with that gravity, I can move that water all around my property to, do, to water. So the rain falls, and I catch and I store it. That is one form of energy. When we're just growing a garden, you have those plants that are growing up. Where do you think all that biomass comes from? Sure, they harvest some mineral and nutrient from the earth. But most of that is plants are growing solar panels. They're living solar panels. They're the embodiment of solar energy. So we catch and we store energy as we grow a plant. When we harvest that plant, let's say a pepper plant or a tomato plant, the part we harvest to consume is very small compared to the total biomass that we have. So now we have this large amount of surplus. It's stored embodied energy. Do we chop it up and send it away? Or do we compost it? to make new soil, and then move that solar energy that we held temporarily in leaf and stem into soil biology that can then be recycled back up to new plants. You see how that works? And then, Or do we have a biomass that's usable for a fuel? Or to make biochar? Or to feed to our animals? Do we get one yield for us and another yield for animals? There's tremendous numbers of ways to catch and store energy. We can have a greenhouse. Sun beats down on it. stays warm for a time after the sun goes down. We've caught and stored energy. We can expand that. 
We could take black water tanks in the back of that greenhouse and let them heat up all day. That catches and stores energy, and then it just passively radiates out at night and maintains the temperature in the greenhouse better than if it were not there. We can actually build a thermal battery in the earth with a simple little fan and pipes that go down into the earth that pull heat from the top of the greenhouse, the hottest point, and put it into the earth, and then have a lower pipe that pulls the heat back out of the earth, and we can even store energy for months on end in the earth and passively heat a greenhouse through winter with stored solar energy in the ground. When we put in a swale, which is a ditch on contour, so we have a level ditch, and it fills up with water during a rain event, and then that water just seems to disappear. Well, it goes into the earth. And then our plants and our trees can use it for a much longer period of time than if it had run off on the surface and then down the ditch and back to the rivers. We've stored it in the land. There are thousands of ways to catch and store energy, and we should be setting up our design to catch and store energy in the most appropriate fashion possible to meet the goals of the design. That's what makes it a design science. See how simple that is? How about obtain a yield? Attain a yield is also can be, be explained as get an ROI for your efforts. Get a return on your investment. Many of you that listen to me are entrepreneurs. When you go into some action in your business, you expect to get something out of it or you wouldn't do it. You share stuff on social media, sure, you have causes you believe in. And but if you didn't think anybody would pay attention to it, you wouldn't do it. If you didn't think it would, if you're a brand and you didn't think it would do something positive for your brand, you wouldn't do it. When you decide to add a product line to something you sell and you're going to add a new product, if you didn't think anybody would buy it, or if you thought, if I add this product, it'll cost me $11 to produce and I can sell it for $10 and I'll lose a dollar for every one I sell, you wouldn't do it. You would expect a return of investment. The actions we take on our, on our properties as homesteaders, if we're doing permaculture, should be producing a positive result. There should be a return. This is not trophy hunter thinking. That's not what that means. But it does mean that if we're doing something that's actually causing a lack of a yield, then we're putting more in than we're getting out. That's the very nature of mining. right? But it's like backwards, even worse, it's like backwards mining. It's like digging a giant uh, strip mine for coal and getting no coal. We've just made the, we've made the giant scar and yet we haven't even at least gotten the energy that we would get from that fossil fuel coal. It's even worse than digging, see that's the thing, it's even worse than digging the giant strip mine and taking the coal out. It's, it's evil. That's, don't get me wrong, that's evil the way we do strip mining. I come from coal country in Pennsylvania. I've seen land that's, that's still destroyed after over a hundred years since it was mined. But at least, there was an enter there was a yield. Imagine doing all that damage and not getting anything for it. Kind of in reverse, that's what you're doing if you go out and you put in a garden and you extend a hundred thousand calories of energy and that garden never produces a hundred thousand calories of nutrient back to you. There should be a yield. There should be a positive net result in what you do. Now maybe a piece over here doesn't, and it, but it's 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 integral to a piece over here and combine that. That's fine, but what we're talking about here is an energy audit. Will you ever get back what you've expended and what you've put in to building something? 
And we can measure that yield in a lot of ways. Calories is one. What is the value of beauty? What is the value of converting CO2 to oxygen? What if we put in trees that, you know, they're, they're going to be so long lived that we'll never harvest them and maybe they don't produce f food. Maybe they are eventually going to provide a yield for a future generation in timber. Maybe they won't. But what's the value of a hundred year old tree? It's a pretty high value. What does it do for the planet? What does it do for the earth? What does it do for people? What does it do for the overall ecosystem? So yields are not all about just us, but what we expend should, should be returned. And if it isn't, it's not good design, whether it's a business or a homestead. If there's not a yield from an action, and we can't quantify that yield, at least in our hearts, then we've probably taken the action inc incorrectly. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. It means that we shouldn't do it in the way that's not going to produce a yield. We should evaluate, again, going back to, you don't want a drill bit, you want a hole. Why do you want a hole, in what material, how big, for what purpose? And if we come to permaculture design that way, then we can make sure that we're always able to design in a way that returns and in, ret gives us an ROI, a return on our investment. Next up, apply self-regulation and accept feedback. So... If I have a plant that's a, a plant that provides a, a yield in greens that I can cut and I can eat, I can cut the whole plant to the ground and maybe it grows back, but what if it doesn't? I might find that if I only take a little bit of the plant every so often that I can make it last a lot longer. And by not going out and taking everything at once... I'm able to get a higher yield over time by regulating myself. Maybe I discover, like I did for a time, that there's people that will pay a lot of money for a duck egg, especially a duck egg the way that we can raise them here at Nine Mile Farm. We had restaurant chefs that I don't know what it is y'all do, but this is the best egg I've ever eaten in my life. Can we run 100 ducks on, on three acres in, in, a, in a way that takes care of the earth? We can Could we have sold the eggs we could have produced with 500 ducks? You bet we could have. Could we have made money doing it? You bet we could have. Could my land sustain 500 ducks? No. I might be able to sustain 500 ducks on three acres in a different climate with less brittle land. But I couldn't do it here, so I wouldn't do it. Regardless of the fact that it might have been a good thing to do economically, It didn't make sense environmentally, so we provide ourselves some self-regulation. And there's a bunch of ways to look at this. If I like to eat chicken, and I have 12 chickens, and I eat a chicken a week for 12 weeks, I have no more chickens. I have to have a plan to reproduce chickens. I have ponds that I've built, and I have fish in them. They're not really big ponds. They're like 5,000-gallon ponds. They're not huge, giant lakes. I put fish in them that I've collected locally. I can take a certain amount of fish out before I have to replace them. And I can put breeding habit in. I've actually got fish now breeding in above-ground ponds. I've got baby red-ear shell crackers breeding in my ponds. One of the coolest things I've ever done. I still can only take so many fish before I'll damage that ecosystem beyond its ability to reproduce for me. 
So we have to look at everything we do. And this is actually a restatement of the third ethic. The third ethic has also been stated, Mollison's original ver version of the third ethic was, was based on applying self-regulation. It was setting limits to population and consumption. That was the original third ethic, which goes right back to return of surplus. These are all interconnected. But we have to set limits on how much we take or how much we expect from a system and under what circumstances we do that in or we will, we will strip mine our own land. And so many farms have done this. There are so many farms now that they have to dump massive tonnage of NPK fertilizer and pesticide and herbicide on the land because the land is literally nothing now but inert physical media. And that's because there was no self-regulation applied. There was no acceptance of the feedback. They just took and took. And when the, when the yields went down, instead of saying, whoa, 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 we're doing something wrong, bring in another truck, beep, 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 bump, dump spread, it's fine. Right, we can dump this powdered white-looking crap everywhere and plow, you know, push it around, plow it around, and just plant, and we can just keep going, and we damage it and we destroy it, not permaculture, where the fields being run under regenerative agriculture principles now become more and more fertile. Mar Shepherd is a great example of this. His land, when he moved into it, was hard-packed red clay. It was like, and it had been farmed with corn and beans, etc. And now it looks like deep, loam, clay, clay soil. But it was because of acceptance of self-regulation and realizing I just can't keep mining this. I have to put something in. I have to bring animals in. I have to manage this properly. That's that principle. Next, use. Um, and value resources and services. So when we have a resource, we should use it. It shouldn't be wasted. When we see a resource out there, we should look at that and say, what, is, what value does that have and where does it go? So one example would be you have this field and it just kind of looks like this rabble of, of, of grasses and weeds and stubble. So they, you know, the average person would just bring in a bush hog, keep it from getting too out of hand, and bush hog it a couple times a year. Well, it's a resource. We can graze it. If it's not good enough for cattle yet, we might actually find we can graze less cattle on it than a land would normally support, but cattle can be grazed on it. And by grazing the cattle, we'll get that meat yield. And if we accept feedback and apply regulation and move the cattle frequently enough, All of a sudden, which was a rabble of weeds, can become a beautiful grassland. If we take a civopasture principle to it and we put rows of trees in it, now the cattle have shade. We can still graze the cattle. We can get a yield from the trees, right? But we've taken that resource, that piece of fallow-looking land, and we've done something with it. If you have chickens, you keep them in a chicken house. You keep litter on the floor. They shit on there. They do it all the time. All night long, wherever they roost, you see more of it than anywhere else. Sooner or later, you can keep adding layers of that, so sooner or later it has to come out. You do have it hauled away. Are you crazy? It's a resource. We need to use and value it. We can now pile it up and wet it down and let that nitrogen carbon do their dance chemically. And we end up with some of the richest, most valuable compost we could ever have because we had the resource we used and valued it. Your garden. 
That's really easy to understand it, right? Except then when you're in a climate where you don't really garden in the winter and just sits there all winter long. That's open space. What if you took a crop that you knew could grow through your winter, like triticale or rye, really, really cold-hardy cereal grain, and grew that? Well, is that just so you can have a grain yield? Probably not. Your garden's not going to produce enough. But you take those grain heads and you cut them off with a, a rice knife, and you use those just a small yield that goes to the chickens who help produce the, the compost, that help to grow the garden in the first place. But then we come through with a scythe and we cut the straw and we lay it straight down where it grew. Now we've taken that resource of that garden space through our winter and we've returned the surplus back to it in straw to make it more fertile in its next spring. Everywhere around you look on a property, you'll find resources that are being wasted. It's real easy to see when it's not your property. Take a walk on somebody else's property. Do a design for somebody else. And you're like, oh, I could do this, I could do that. You don't see it. You know, we, are, we become blind on our own property, blind to our own resources. By looking at the resource availability on other properties, you'll be able to see it on your own. The way that I uh, describe it is a, is a restated principle from a prepper mindset is be efficient to become independent. The more efficient you are with the resources on your property in an in a, in a environmentally friendly way, in a regenerative way, the more independent from outside of your property you become. And your design should be designed to that end, of, among many other ends as well. Next, produce no waste. Produce no waste. That seems almost impossible. This is one of those things that I think in a modern society you may never actually achieve, but by having the goal, you'll get closer to it than if you didn't have it. You may never get to a point of producing zero waste. That means that stuff comes onto your property, nothing leaves. The only way you're, you, you, that's how you know you're producing no waste. If you do not have a garbage man, come get garbage from your house and take it away and you're not a hoarder with stinking stuff all over your house, maybe you've achieved the goal of producing no waste. The only person I know in real life that's ever done this is Rob Greenfield. He's a cool dude. You want to check him out, just look him up on YouTube, Rob Greenfield. Um, I do not produce no waste. I try to produce little waste as possible. We can do this in various ways. So if we do have something coming to our house, and it's packaged in cardboard, the cardboard, instead of then being taken away by a garbage man, can be shredded up and composted. In the end, it's trees. It's carbon. Or it can be laid down and used as a mulch layer for gardening or for some other type of restorative uh, thing. But in the end, everything we produce, we should be figuring out, can it go back? And the answer is, if it was ever living, it can be returned to a living system. That doesn't mean that only living systems can be used in a non-waste manner. So, obviously, rock, rock rubble piled maybe can be built into a wall. Right? But we can only build a wall so thick and so high and so far before we, if we still have more rock, why are we producing all this excess rock? Is it because we're strip mining? And for every ton of rock we move, we get a pound of coal? Probably not a good process then. Most of us, were not doing that in our yard. So there's probably a way to take most things that we would see as a waste product and turn it into some sort of a value, right? And, and, and the way I describe this is the way that my grandparents taught me about it. My grandparents, you know, living through the Great Depression, 
Make use of everything. You know, use it twice, use it three times, use it for something else, pass it on to somebody else. Don't throw it away until there's nothing left to do but throw it away. And then be sure of that before you do it. And again, I don't know that you'll be able to do this and live the life that you want to live. I don't know that you'll be able to get to an actual zero waste. Because understand, you go out and you buy something, it comes in a plastic container, you don't really have a use for that plastic container, so you throw it in the trash, you've just produced waste. If you recycle it, if the place that it's going actually does what they say they do, okay. But unless you're either using it, keeping it, or you know it's being recycled, upcycled, etc., if it's going to a landfill, it's waste. So think long and hard about the systems you design. It's one thing to say, look, I'm only willing to sacrifice so much in this modern world, and I'm going to have a garbage man, and some of my stuff's going to have to go to, you know, what have you. But don't design something that produces waste. You can at least start there. If some, and how many places can you eliminate waste? And it starts to become pretty fun when you start working on that. You start to realize how much of the average person's garbage is food. You know how the garbage truck goes by and it smells bad? The only thing that smells bad in that garbage is either diapers from babies, and I'll let you figure out what you want to do with your diapers, okay? But otherwise, what stinks in the garbage is food. Plastic containers do not stink. The food in them stinks. So if we develop systems for composting, we can even compost things like meat and bone through the use of black soldier fly. How much of our waste could be eliminated if we were producing fertility with it, but instead of producing fertility with it, we're over here mining minerals and dumping them on fallow fields that grew the food that we didn't use all of that now goes into a landfill. Do you see how stupid that is? So you can't get the whole world to stop doing that. But anything you build on your property, you should be thinking, I need to design this to produce no waste. Which means whatever comes out of it, how do I use it? If you're using it, it's not waste. If it's a resource, it's not waste. See how simple that is? All right? So make use of everything. Next, design from pattern to detail. And the way I describe that is be an artist. Step back for that longer view. That's what I, what I think of when I think of designing from pattern to details. If you look at my most recent large garden project that I put in, it's four beds, and they're shaped kind of like an L. And they, they make a square with four big gaps with arches over them around a 12 by 12 above ground timber frame pond. If you look at that from above, it looks like kind of a Japanese garden. It's very formal. It was designed that way. Everything is spaced. The gaps between each of the beds that have the arch are exactly six feet. The distance back from uh, the, uh, the centerpiece, which is the pond, is exactly eight feet. That was all designed. It was designed on graph, graph paper. And that way I could get an accurate material count, and I knew exactly why I was doing it. I was designing a pattern with very specific detail, to a very specific end to grow food. But it wasn't just to grow food. It was, well, this backside is going to be trellised. And the backside is going to be trellised because that's the north side. 
So since my sun comes from the south, the trellis won't shade out the rest of the gardens. But there's a tree over here and a building over here, and this is going to be my place that gets afternoon sun, and this is going to be my other bed was going to get morning sun, and different plants will go in there. That was all based on a pattern and a detail set that worked with the larger environment. The only way to get to there was to step back and look at the space and say, what do I want? How do I want it? And what of that fits here? Why? And then how does that all work? And we start to see patterns in everything. And pattern is one of the coolest parts of permaculture because you start to realize it's, it's often the pattern that the thing is is the pattern in which it grows. So we look at something like a banana circle. It's a, a tropical technique where we take and we build this giant circle pit plant a banana tree in the middle and we throw all types of organic matter into it and we end up with this circle with this these rings going into it and so we have this outer ring we have this this ring of material and we've got the banana in the middle and using that pattern and replicating it we can grow more bananas in the same space than if we just grew them in rows and they're sustainable Right? They actually are using their own waste to produce their own material, and we take other waste from other places and we bring it into these pits. And we're constantly grading, taking a, a high nutrient plant. See, banana takes a lot of nutrient up, but we're taking that nutrient up, and a lot of that waste is going straight back to the earth. And it's actually upcycling that nutrient. The next, the next flush of banana plant will have an easier time getting the nutrient than the first flush because it's already been taken up by a banana and put down in a more bioavailable way because we're only taking the fruit. And the banana tree eventually gets to a size where it's cut back and it goes right back into its pit. But it's shaped with this, this series of circles. We cut the banana plant open and the banana plant looks like the banana circle. The pattern inside the banana. We look at You know, there's, there's a lot of repetition of pattern like that. But you go from pattern to details, but it's about having an artist's eye and being able to back up far enough away to actually see the larger picture. So a lot of times if you look at a painting very close up, it's not even clear what the painting is. You don't even really get what the artist was going for. But when we step back, it's a beautiful image. So you have to design with that type of a mindset. Next, integrate rather than segregate. I always say that with, from the business standpoint of understand the power of teams. So when we plant certain things, we know that they have certain results that you get when you plant them. I know if I plant basil, that I'm not going to constantly stay on it all the time. And some of my basil plants are going to flower. And I know as soon as basil flowers, that bees are going to show up and wasps are going to show up. I know that wasps are predators. So if I know that I have a particular pest that goes after a particular plant that wasps actually like to predate on, that I should plant basil, a basic companion planting. That was one kind of integration. But we can integrate things with our animals. Here's a, here's a great way that I integrated things with animals for a while. I had an aviary, 10-foot wide, 50-foot long aviary with a whole bunch of wicking beds in it that I grew peppers and other plants with. And on the ground ran around little Courtney's Japanese quail that produced me eggs and delicious quail to eat. Well, in the wicking beds, I started planting uh, sweet potato 
Sweet potato greens are edible. Quail like to eat them. So the plants would then grow these long vines over the side of the wicking bed down to the ground, and as the as the, the vines got low enough to the ground that the quail could reach them, the quail ate them. Now, normally you're like, I don't want my birds eating my crops. See how that, like, you don't really want that. But in this case, it didn't hurt the sweet potato at all. When you prune a sweet potato, it grows more aggressively and more rapidly and puts out more shoots. So the, the sweet potato would grow to the ground, the quail would eat it, and then it would grow back like a conveyor belt. So the quail were now eating a yield from a plant that was beyond my needs, and I didn't have to do anything. The system naturally integrated Rather than putting the quail in a cage over here and the sweet potato in a garden over there, I put them together. You could do this with something like you have a rabbit hutch, and under the rabbit hutch you have a worm compost bin. And the rabbits poop, and the poop goes down to the compost bin, and the worms integrate the rabbit poop with the other compostables and make beautiful worm castings, and now they are two systems put together. Another way that we call this is function stacking. How many things can one thing do for you? Integrate rather than segregate. Build team power into your designs. Next, use small and slow solutions. I often say focus on what you can do first. The things that you can do, they're going to make the biggest impact for you initially. You do those and then you slowly build on them. I got into trouble on this property when I moved out. I'll be, I'll be honest. Um, I finally had a flat, big piece of property. And the hell with how shallow the soil was and how much rock there is and how harsh the climate is. I'm Jack Spierko. I'm a permaculturist. I know my stuff. I'm going to go. And I have some money and I got some resources. I got some people to help me. I'm going to plant shit everywhere. And a whole bunch of it was wasted and died. It did not get that ROI. Because I tried to go fast everywhere all at once. When I started focusing on, I'm going to start with a pond and then what gets connected to the pond and then what gets connected to that, and then what gets connected to that, all of a sudden I started getting yields beyond my ability to use them. I had, for instance, just with eggplant this year, we grew these Asian eggplants. I got to a point where it was like, I don't want any more. Plants are going to start dying if you don't take care of them. Let them die. I'm done. I'm done. I don't. I, and you go from not having enough to having more than you can use or even give away. Or even feed your animals. Chickens are like, I don't want no more eggplant. I've eaten enough eggplant. Dude, leave me alone. Feed that to the worms. And the worms are like, dude, I'm not even coming to the service for that anymore. I'm good. There's so much in here already. I don't need it. But it starts out by going, what can I do first? And how do I slowly build off of that? And how do I have enough patience to work with nature and give nature the time that it needs to get to where I want it to go? We can hugely accelerate natural processes with permaculture. Growing a food forest is a perfect example of that. We go in and we plant pioneering trees. And then we go in and we cut the pioneering trees and put them to the ground. And then they sprout again and we cut them and put them to the ground. And we take what would take 50 years for nature to do. And we do it in 10. 10 years is still a decade. It's still a really long time if we're not patient. And having these small, slow solutions over time allows us to build tremendous abundance. Next, use and value diversity. One way you can look at that is a, a way that I don't think many people would describe this. 
that 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 term diversity has gotten very politicized since this principle was put on paper. And I think it's important that when you when you read something that someone put a lot of thought and effort into writing, that you read it in the context of the time. So this is not like, you know, our modern version of diversity for the sake of diversity. This was written from a standpoint of don't monocrop. Don't put in a field of 40,000 acres of just corn and expect to not have problems. But don't plant 80 gazillion plants if you don't know why you're planting what you're planting, unless it's a grand experiment, just to see what happens. Right? I call that practicing risk reduction. If I grow potatoes, I decide I'm going to have Jack, Nine Mile Farm's going to be Jack's potato farm. It'd be a real bad idea here. But let's just say I did. And let's say I want a bad place to grow potatoes. Potatoes did really good here. People before me grew potatoes. People after me probably would grow potatoes. That's a good place to grow potatoes. And all I do is I plant one kind of potato. And for years, it's, it's great. And I do good land practices. I, I take care of the soil. I'm not just dumping fertility on. I, I'm actually doing a good job, as, 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 as good a job as you can as a potato farmer who only farms potatoes. And then one year, a blight comes. It kills all my potatoes. My farm just went bankrupt. I practice no risk reduction in that model. Now, if I have four or six or eight crops that I've divided up my farm with, I'm not even anywhere near what we would really think of like permaculture gilding. I've just done a more conventional but organic style farm based on eight crops, and one of them is potatoes. And a blight comes. It kills all my potatoes. It hurts. It's one-eighth if it's eight crops, and I'm doing them evenly if I happen to be. Then it's one-eighth of my yield. Maybe it's my high-dollar product, but I still have seven others. When I practice diversity in my ecosystem, if one thing fails or just fails to produce that year, if I plant all peaches and I get a frost at the wrong time of the year, it knocks all the blossoms off them. My year where peaches were supposed to come, I get none. Because peaches generally produce a little bit one year and a lot the next year and a little bit the next year and a lot the next year. They're kind of a biannual cycle. Not that you get none, but you get a lot less. Well, if I get hit on what was supposed to be a good year with a late frost, I've got a real problem. Once those blossoms are knocked off, if they hadn't set fruit, you're not getting any this year. None. But if I have a mixed orchard, and I have peaches that are actually timed, so I have early, mid-season, and late. I'm still going to get some peaches. But if I've also got pears and apples and cherries and nuts, figs, etc., then I have the ability to get a yield no matter what happens. Additionally, the more diversity I have, the more diversity of life that I'll have. And the more diversity of life that I have, the more predators I have, the more pressure on my pests that I have. So diversity is not, let's not get stupid with it. But let's not design it out of the system. Let's design as much diversity into our system as, as makes sense based on our goals for the system and accepting feedback to how much we can fit in an area, how much we can take from an area, etc. Next, use edges and value the marginal. The way I describe that is seek 
alliances, not conflicts. But edge effect is very real. And it's probably the most important overlooked component to permaculture. People talk about it, but then they don't do it. And all we have to do is remember that with permaculture, we're always looking to the forest as the teacher. And while it's a pretty amazing thing to be inside a forest, I think anybody that's ever, you know, walked in the forest beyond here's a trailhead and this nice little place somebody cut a hole for you to go in called a trail. Anybody who's ever walked through a real field without a path and gotten to a woodland edge and said, I want to go in that forest, has experienced what it's like in that transitional space. It's hard to get through. That's where the, the briars and the brambles and the vines and the bushy and the thick, and it's unbelievable. Like, you got to fight your way in. And assuming it's a fairly mature forest, only a couple feet of that, and then even if it's tons of trees, you can easily move through. Maybe there's a place with some tangles and stuff in there, some laurels or whatever. But overall, once you're in the woods, you can move. And can you move through the field? Sure. Where's the snarl? Where's the abundance? It's on the edge. It's on the edge. The edge is where everything goes in abundance. You ever look at somebody's yard and the grass is kind of, you know, like let's say it's not well kept, it's not perfectly manicured, and there's kind of different heights and everything, but you ever notice how like your really thick, aggressive weeds or even just your really tall, dark green grass is right where the sidewalk meets the dirt? There's an extra water catchment there. And then there's if those roots get underneath the sidewalk, it's acting as a form of mulch, and it's reducing evaporation. But it's an edge effect. You see a guy in a boat fishing, giant lake, where's he at? Following the shoreline, just following the weed line. Even when it looks like he's in the middle of the lake, and he looks like, hey, in the middle of the lake, there's probably a hump or something. There's some structure underneath the water. There's an edge. Or there's a plankton bloom. And then little plankton, like zooplankton, came to eat the, the phytoplankton. And then that brings in things like shad, bait fish. And then the predator fish come. And then the guy's fishing for the predator fish. And you say there's no edge, but there's an edge. There's a plankton edge creating a bait fish ed edge, creating an integration edge between the predator fish and the bait fish. And that's why the abundance is there. All the abundance in the world occurs on the edge. So if we're seeking to create abundance, then we should be designing edge systems with the intention of abundance creation into our systems. And we can do that again. I'm talking about homesteads and food production today. All the abundance in a factory takes place at the edge. The assembly line is an edge. And what do we have? We have a receiving edge and a shipping edge in a, in a process like that. Things come in, they move down a line through an edge, and they come out assembled or put together or packaged in some new way. It's always the edge that produces abundance. And then we need to be mindful of that because if we produce too much edge and we're unable to manage it, we can have the natural system run away from us and it becomes difficult to maintain. So at some point, we actually might want to limit edge and always be aware of that edge effect. In other words, again, we're seeking alliances rather than conflicts. Next, And the last one, use creativity and adapt to change. Use creativity and adapt to change. Being a military person, improvise, adapt, overcome. You will never 
design a property and have everything you design work exactly the way you designed it when you put it in place. You are going to get into situations where I thought this would work and it doesn't. So what does it do now? How do I, how do I make the effort that I've already expended useful when the reason I did it in the first place didn't work? That would be going back. And all this, see, all this integrates because now we're not going to produce waste. Because waste isn't always in the form of things. Sometimes it's in the form of energy. We've put all this energy into this, all this money into this, and it doesn't do what we planned. Well, what can it do? How can it be repurposed? How can I adapt to it? You move in and you think, hey, this is going to be a great property, and then you find out you don't have the soil depth you thought you had. How do I make it work? How do I improvise to the new reality that I've discovered, adapt to that, and overcome a challenge? These 12 principles, coupled with the concept of zone design that I've given you today, and then you add to it things like sector analysis and a good understanding of plant types, biomes, etc., you can design any property. You can spend you know, a full permaculture design course. It's 80 hours of instruction. It's totally worth doing. But in the end, this core, is what everything is really based on. And again, there's other great principles. Ben Falk has a bunch of principles in his book, Beyond David's Principles Here. I have my own principles I've put out, right? We all can come up with our own principles. These just have to be 12 really great ones from one of the guys that helped found the movement. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today. Um want to remind you, if you like the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast and you want to help us out, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you do that, again, you can help us out no matter what you eventually buy. And uh, today we got Garrett Juice Plus for you. Since we're talking about permaculture and gardening and that, I thought we should get something uh, that, that fit that mold. And Garrett Juice is part of my seven-component fertility program for maximum garden production. But I say this often, if you made me pick out of my fertility program just two of the seven, one would be the Dr. Earth Fertilizer, and I would even say you can replace it with any good organic fertilizer that's a well-balanced fertilizer that has a good uh, biological profile, beneficial bacteria and fungi, and a good balance of NP and K. That's, it's all organic. The other, though, would be the Garrett Juice. And I have never found something that I think is as good as Garrett Juice or would be even a valid substitute for Garrett Juice. Garrett Juice is just this amazing product. It seems pretty expensive at about 30 to 40 bucks a gallon, depending on what version of it you get. But when you realize how much of it you actually make out of that, you know, because this is a concentrate you dilute with water, it's actually really inexpensive. And it is absolutely phenomenal what it will do to change things for you. Check it out today. You can find out more about it at tspaz.com. Remember also, it is members of the Survival Podcast Members Brigade that really enable everything that we do. And if you become a member of the Survival Podcast Members Brigade, you'll get these discounts. You can use them on things you're probably going to buy anyway, and then you'll help support the show. It's, it's, it's an ROI. We talked about that as one of our principles today. So what I mean by that is, if you paid 50 bucks and then all you got was the podcast, you could turn around and say, well, I don't have to pay 50 bucks to get the podcast. Podcast is free. And that would be true. That would be absolutely true. But if you pay 50 bucks to get my membership, and then over the next year you get $100 worth of discounts, you made $50 by being a member, and you supported the podcast that you listen to. 
That is smart design. So do consider becoming a member today. To learn more, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. And while you're there, or if you're already a member, or if you're not going to be a member, what have you, still get on the daily mail. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on daily mail. You get an email once a day. It's going to be two to five bullet points with a link with each one. It'll be like, I have a new article, I have a new episode, here's this thing I found, that's it. It's never going to be spammy, it's never going to be anything but TSP-related content. Um, it is the best way to stay in touch with all that we do. Again, it's called the Daily Mail. Go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Daily Mail. It's also on the subscribe page. Remember, we are on all the podcast aggregators, Last FM, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iTunes, you name it, we're everywhere. So if you found us some other way on on you know a social media platform or something directly, if you listen to podcasts, we're everywhere. Just search for the Survival Podcast. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up with our song of the day. Song of the day came to me from uh, Michael Laprise of Sue and Mike Laprise, the uh, homeschool couple from uh, Halo by Sue com, which is uh, based on permaculture principle of designing the life you'd love to live. Mike said that this song really embodies um, a lot of what's going on today. It's about moving to Texas. Now, I think it's important to understand that Texas in this song is much bigger than just Texas. Texas is symbolic of somewhere better. It's about getting out of a bad place to a better place. Now, the artist actually said sometimes when you do that, you find out the place that you were trying to get to isn't better than where you were. I find that interesting because the original video I have linked in the show notes today um, is East Germany is the place that, that they're kind of stuck. And Texas is kind of symbolic of the West, getting out of the East and into the West. Today, and this song was from like uh, mid-'80s, so I guess that was a big thing at the time. In fact, I know it was because I was around back then because um, I'm old. But uh, today, I think this song really is, you know, a good song can be then repackaged and repurposed and reinterpreted in a, in a, in a different time. And I think that there is a sentiment right now that a lot of these places, a lot of these cities are not going to be a good place to be in the next few weeks, next few years, maybe even the next few decades. And that people are beginning to realize that in the words of Bill Mollison, nothing is so unsustainable as a city. We can convince ourselves that cities are environmentally friendly and high-density populations make sense because they make better use of resources, etc. But if you take any city and you cut it off from its support system in the countries, the countryside, you have starvation and misery like you wouldn't believe. And the number one export of cities is garbage. And if you want to design the types of systems that we are talking about today, it can be done in the city. It's actually pretty cool it can be done in the city. But the true freedom to do it for yourself exists at least outside that belt of the suburbs when you get into what we call the urban-rural fringe. So maybe it doesn't have to be the wide-open roads spoken of in this song. But remember, those are symbolic. To me, to me right now has been the clearest warning sign in history that a lot of our experiments with how we manage people and control people and design our modern systems are starting to break down and to fail. And remember our quote of the day today. 
David Holgram, who is the source of these 12 principles we talked about today, again, he said, I thought if something was a good idea, we should be able to apply it to ourselves as guinea pigs and do something with it rather than just tell other people what they should do. If you really want to be able to apply these principles to yourself so that you can demonstrate it, you need as much liberty to act as you can find. And it's not in the giant cities. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to move off to Texas or move across the country or move far away from your friends and family. But maybe if you haven't already done so, it's time to head just a little bit down one of those long open roads and build something that you really want to build for yourself and your family. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Warm winds blowing, heat and blue sky, and a road that goes forever. Thinking about it lately, been watching some TV, been looking all around me, and what has come to be. Been talking to my neighbor, and he agrees with me. It's all gone crazy. Well, my wife returns from taking my little girl to school. She got me to perspiration as she tries to keep her cool. She says that mess, it don't get no better. There's gonna come a day. Someone's gonna get killed out there And I turn to her and say Texas She says, what? I said, Texas She says, what? They got big long roads out there Warm winds blowing Yeah, yeah.